Good morning, Faith family. Glad that you guys are here this morning. My name is Robbie, and it is a joy to be back with you guys again. I'm one of your pastor elders, and I uh, am excited to take you through a little bit of the Old Testament this morning. You guys ready? All right, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, far too many of us have been scared away from the Old Testament, right? We either think it's irrelevant, so we don't bother, or we think it is uh, confusing and brutal and boring, so we don't bother. But, uh, but Paul says, in, in, uh, I believe it's in Romans, he says that this is written for our instruction. There is benefit, great personal spiritual benefit for us reading this, and that there's much for us to learn from that. When we avoid the Old Testament, because it seems kind of confusing or, or it freaks us out a little bit, uh, then not only do we have a more difficult time understanding the New Testament, uh, but we miss out on the glorious little gems like this passage that we're going to look at this morning. So as uh, you, guys, you guys all make it to 1 Samuel chapter 12, if, uh, if you don't know where that is, elbow the person next to you and, uh, and they'll help you get there. Um, this, to, get to, to set the stage for you a little bit, this is Samuel, as the name of the book would imply, uh, and he is a prophet and judge, and he's preaching, in this passage, he is preaching to the people of Israel, uh, basically as he exits public ministry, okay? We, he has a few more things to accomplish as, as, uh, as, as history goes on, but really his public ministry is, is beginning to wind down here, and this is an address. And uh, and to give you just a little bit of background, Israel, who not unlike us, uh, is prone to do what is right in their own eyes rather than uh, what God has specifically instructed them to do, comes to Samuel and declares, we want a king. To which Samuel replies, you have one, like the best one ever. God is your king. To which the people retort, no, we want a person to be our king, to judge us and fight our battles for us. We want to be like everyone else. And alarmingly, God grants their request. He tells Samuel, give the people what they are asking for, which, if you ask me, is a sobering reminder that God giving you exactly what you asked for is not always him affirming that you asked for a good thing. So Samuel lets the people know that choosing an earthly king over God is crazy sinful and then affirms that God agrees with him by calling down a thunderstorm on all the people, which is a good attention getter. So they respond, as you should, with terror as they realize how powerful God actually is and they acknowledge and they confess their wickedness and they ask for God's forgiveness. And Samuel responds to them with this declaration in chapter 12. We're going to go all the way to the very end. So actually you can go to 13 and then back up a few verses. Starting in verse 20, it says, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. 
For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. May God bless the reading of his word and grant us understanding in our spirit, in our soul, in our heart, and in our mind. Amen. So for my bullet point people, this passage is your jam. Right? Do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this. Don't. It's even symmetrical. You've got three do-nots and three do's, right? That's delightful. So in verses 20 and 21, we have the three do-nots. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Number two, do not turn aside from following the Lord. And number three, do not turn after empty things. So the first one, do not be afraid that you have done all this evil. You have committed serious sins, he tells the people, but you do not have to be afraid. Samuel covers both of the typical ditches that we can fall into here, right? When, we, when our, our response to sin is often to ignore it or to dwell on it. And so we ignore it, or we downplay it, or we dismiss it, or we compare it to others in an attempt to try to minimize our own, or, or most destructively, we believe it's not even there. Right? I'm sure I used to sin, but that's not really a part of my life anymore. Or I sin in theory, right? but like, I couldn't tell you how I did today because I'm not really sure that I did. But I know in theory I am a sinner And Scripture would warn us that ignoring our sin is is arrogant nonsense, is foolishness. John says that if I claim I have no sin, if I ignore the sin that is in my life, I am calling God a liar, which feels like a really big deal. And that his word is not in you. And we need to remember, John is the one who reminded us that the word of God is Jesus. So what he's essentially saying is, if I claim I have no sin, Jesus is not in you. Or at the very least, he has very little influence over your heart and life. Claiming that I do not sin, or that my sin is really not that big a deal, is simply admitting that I have totally surrendered to it. It doesn't even feel like sin anymore. I'm pretty sure I don't even have sin because I don't feel any conviction over it. That's a dangerous place to be. So Samuel tells them when they come to him and say, Oh, we've sinned. He goes, Oh, yeah, yeah, you have. Yes, this is horrible. You have done all this evil. Let's just lay that out on the table and call it what it is. No more hiding, no more self-justification, no more minimizing, but also do not be afraid. The ditch on the other side of the path is dwelling on our sin, right? We fixate on it sometimes. We don't just acknowledge that it is, that it is there. We set up camp and we settle It becomes an obstacle that feels impossible to climb over. 
shackles that are far too heavy to ever break free from. The discouragement is deep and the defeat is real. But the reality is that fixating on our sin just leads to faithless despair. Both ditches are the result of the exact same distortion of the gospel. It's so small that it's functionally worthless. As if the attitude of my heart is, I'm not even really a sinner, I barely need saving. I am communicating a worthlessly tiny gospel. Didn't even really hardly need to do anything for me. Or if I am so overwhelmed with the sense of I am such a horrible sinner, it is impossible for God to save me, then I am preaching a worthlessly tiny gospel. It's the same distortion of the gospel that leads to these to both ditches. But Samuel puts no such limits on God. No. He he doesn't downplay their sin. He acknowledges that it is a really big deal. God is just bigger. He's a bigger deal than their sin. That's why we sing songs here like grace greater than our sin. And his mercy is more. Because we don't want to pretend like sin isn't a big deal. That's nonsense. And doesn't do anything to help us. No, no, sin, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. They are a horrifying offense to God, but his grace is is greater. We're just saying this morning, these afflictions suddenly become eclipsed by glory. They're awful until I realize that they just become shadowed in the enormity of the grace and glory of God. Hallelujah! You got that right. That deserves an amen. Amen. As extreme as the lengths are that we will go to, brothers and sisters, to sin and then to justify or hide our sin, God has gone to immeasurably more extreme lengths in order to save us from the penalty and power and one day the presence of sin entirely. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his namesake because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Here's what the New Testament writers say about it. In Titus, Paul says it like this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, what? A people for his own possession. Does that sound familiar? Who are zealous for good works. This is the good stuff, church. This is the good stuff. Marguerite de Navarre is one of the most important figures of the Reformation that you never heard of. She was the queen of a small country nestled between France and Spain called 
Navarre, and the sister of the king of France during the Reformation. And she used her influence with her brother to save the lives of countless reformers during a time of deadly infighting within the church, including John Calvin, who hid in her castle as he was escaping to Geneva, both by convincing her brother to stay their executions and by hiding them in her castle and then smuggling them out to other safer countries. She was both brilliant and creative, like C.S. Lewis would weave theology into fiction and poetry so effectively that the Catholic Church banned and burned her books as heresy alongside books written by Martin Luther. She was legit. If anyone was justified in feeling self-justified, I would argue it would be the theologian queen who used her wealth and her authority, her incomparable creativity and, and political brilliance to save the lives of pastors and theologians and laypeople and arguably saved the French Reformation itself. And yet, in one extraordinary poem, she writes this. Is there an abyss torturous and cruel enough to punish one-tenth of my sins? In the French, it actually rhymes, so I know that would be way cooler, but in the English, we got what we got. So great in number are they that the vastness blurs my vision so that I cannot see well enough to count them. I am overwhelmed. Worse still, I am too incompetent to deal with the least of them. I sense they are deeply rooted in my being, and all around me I see no effect, no sign, which is not a branch, a flower, a leaf, or fruit generated by them. So she says, I don't see a single thing in my life that is not tainted by the sin that has corrupted my heart in such a way that I'm blind, I can't even see that it's there. But she does not stop there. Listen to this. But grace, which I do not merit, and which can raise us all from the clutches of death by its bright light, illuminates my darkness. So good, right? Imagine if it rhymed. And by its great goodness, looks upon my flaws, lifting the veil of ignorance. It gives me the clear and proper vision to see who I am and what I am. It can come only from the infinite grace of the Almighty who never tires through the intercession of Jesus Christ who saves us by His mercy. Ah, what a Lord! Amen. What a Lord indeed, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. All who know that their sins are current and corrosive and real and completely conquered by Jesus can declare that and mean it with all their heart and with all their mind and with all their soul. Do not be afraid of your sin, either to confess it or to leave it behind. It is a defeated foe. Number two, verse 20, do not turn aside from following the Lord. 
Serve him with your whole heart. Do not turn aside from following the Lord. There is a reason that before we were called Christians, in the book of Acts, you'll notice followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. Because it was understood by people both inside the church and outside the church that this was a path, it was a journey, it was a way of life. It changed everything about how you viewed life itself and how you lived it. It was the way of following the capital W way, as in Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It was not just a decision, it was a surrendering to this entirely new way of life, citizenship in a totally different kingdom, a move to leave behind everything else and walk with Jesus wherever he leads. So it was obvious to everyone around the church how different this was. The question was not, did you accept Jesus? The proper question would be, are you following Jesus? Because what mattered was not some point in time apart from the cross, which is the one point in time that matters. What matters is, are you, are you following him right now? Do not turn aside from following the Lord This, this idea of, of the path or the way was common language in the Old Testament. Right from the very beginning, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Sound familiar? But you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live. In the New Testament... We see this exact same thing echoed over and over again in 1 Thessalonians. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you would do so more and more and more. None of us has arrived. None of us can feel like, well, I did what was required and now I'm good. No, no, no. More and the thing that you're doing, doing more. And then tomorrow, more than that. And then the next day, even more. Continue to follow in Colossians and Ephesians, twice, Paul again, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Ephesians, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We are always moving towards something. The only question is, what am I moving toward? And here Samuel urges us, Actually, technically, Samuel is urging the people of Israel. The Holy Spirit, through Samuel, is urging us, do not turn aside from following the Lord. Why? For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Which brings us to number three. Do not turn aside from following the Lord in verse 21, and do not turn aside after empty things, things that cannot profit or deliver. Why? They are empty. They're hollow. Do not turn aside from the Lord and toward empty things, which is, by the way, anything not the Lord. Galatians 4.9 echoes this when it says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, Right? You didn't, this wasn't your own brilliance that you discovered God. No, he, came, he came to you and said, hey, you, you're, you're mine. Right? So 
that we've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless? Read empty elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Why would you enslave yourself to empty things again? You've been given eternity. Why? They do not profit or deliver. They do not satisfy or save. They don't satisfy us. Our hearts convince us that one more thing, another experience, another accomplishment, just a little more affirmation, just a little more, just a little more, just a little more will satisfy. And it never does. Ever, because tomorrow I need a little more. If it was going to work, it would have worked by now. Why does it not work? Because as the Author of Ecclesiastes says, God has placed eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has placed, he put eternity into our hearts. How many buckets of stuff does it take to fill a bottomless pit? Only something eternal can fill something eternal. Right? We were made by the eternal for the eternal. And as everyone's favorite African theologian, Augustine, so beautifully put, our hearts will not rest until they rest in him. Empty things will not profit us or satisfy us, nor will they deliver or save us. Continually reach for these things in the hopes that they will save us. I reach, you know, we reach for another drink to make us numb. We reach for any number of things on the internet to make us feel. We cling to our own works or principles or understanding of the truth to make us secure. But all of them are empty. I'm trying to fill a bucket with fog. Just, it's nothing. They all just, they, they, they work. Actually, they work for a few seconds, right? That's why we continue to go back to them. Because for a few seconds, we go, ah, it's, this feels good. This numbed me just like I hoped. Ah, this stirred something in me just like I hoped. But within seconds, it just evaporates because it's empty. Verse 21, do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver why? Because they're empty. We are expecting things of them that are impossible for them to fulfill. Verse 22, For the Lord will not forsake His people. For His name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Robbie, why do you keep on reading verse 22? Because verse 22 is the hinge that this whole passage swings on. We do not refrain from doing these things in the previous two verses so that our glorious Father will make us His people. We do these things because He already has, in spite of ourselves. Titus 3, we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, 
in the midst of that hot mess, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, as if we could earn it, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Remember what he said just a few verses previous in Titus. Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Because of that, that reality of who Jesus is and what he has done and who we can be because of that, do not be afraid that you have sinned, church. Do not turn aside from following the Lord. Do not turn aside after empty things. If you are not a follower of Jesus, first of all, I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome. I hope you feel welcome. I hope you know that you are welcome. If you're struggling with really even understanding what that looks like, you are absolutely in the right place. You are no, above all else, you are dearly and deeply loved by the God of the universe who loves you right where you are but loves you too much to let you stay right where you are. He brought you here to tell you or to remind you that he is bigger than your sin and your fear and your pain and that because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this same mercy and renewal that we just read about is offered to you so that you too might be forgiven and redeemed and adopted into the family of God. If you hear that and something in you is stirring, do not leave here today without responding to that. Come and talk to me or talk to Jay who is up here on stage or talk to Kevin who opened up the service with the call to worship or to Pastor Jeff, talk to one of us or the person that you came with. We want to talk to you about that. Or if you think that you have been following Jesus and you hear this and you go, wait a minute, if that's what this looks like, I'm not sure I have. Please come talk to us. The elders of this church love you more than you could know. It is our, our both command and our privilege to serve you. As Samuel here says, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Church, the pastor elders of this church are praying for you. Because we love you and we want God's highest and best for you. And he, he goes on, he says, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. There's echoes of this in Acts as the early church is developing and the apostles see all these things that are going on. They say we have to commit, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Just like Samuel, we must devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the people of the church to the glory of God and the flourishing of his people. Now, to all of us, to those who are the people of God and to those who the Spirit of God may or may not have just informed that you are, 
we have the three do's. Number one, fear the Lord. Number two, serve Him faithfully with your whole heart. Three, consider the great things that He has done for you. Number one, fear the Lord. We want to diminish or explain that away because that sounds scary, right? We don't, we don't want God to seem or feel scary. And so we say things like, that just means having a healthy respect for God. Yes, it includes that for sure. The problem is then we inadvertently diminish God to the point of being essentially powerless. God isn't like middle management where you should respect him and follow his rules because otherwise he might get you in trouble. When, when I was standing on my balcony in my, in my house in Texas and looked across the street and saw the 200-yard wide funnel cloud that was entering our neighborhood minutes away from laying waste to 17 out of the 21 houses in our neighborhood. It is fair to say I had an overwhelming sense of awe and a great deal of respect for what that tornado was about to do. That respect was affirmed in the aftermath. I think we can all agree those words are accurate and inadequate. Not only is it okay to feel a degree of fear when considering the most powerful entity inside or outside the universe, it is actually irrational to not feel that. What degree of blindness do you have to feel to go, eh, that's no big deal? There's a reason that every time somebody encounters just an angel in Scripture, they immediately fall down on the ground in total terror because that is the appropriate response to something that is that much more powerful and otherworldly than you are. Adam can actually give us a little bit of help in clarifying different kinds of fear, the right fear and the wrong fear. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam did not fear God, and so he sinned, which made him afraid of God. Weird, right? His fear of missing out on being God outweighed his holy fear of the power and authority of God. And then once he realized what he had done, then he runs and hides and says, I was afraid of you. He did not understand God enough to respect and obey him, but immediately the guilt and shame that he felt made him fear punishment from God for his failure. We must seek to know God well enough through Jesus and the Spirit that our sense of overwhelming awe is so powerful that all other fears seem as they are, ridiculously inconsequential. They're, they're empty. Even the magnitude of our sin is dwarfed by the enormity, of the holy glory and power of the very real God of the universe that Jason read this morning, that the consuming fire, the power of God. 
which stirs us to number two, serve him faithfully with our whole heart. We're going to spend a whole sermon talking about the idea of the whole heart in a few weeks when we get into our psalm series. So here I will say, simply put, it, it, is, it is the point of allowing your divided heart to be unified. Because our hearts are so divided with so many different desires that are often contradictory and at war with one another. And, and maybe we allow God a small corner, but really he's, he's like trying to fight in the midst of these battling desires that are in our hearts. Rather, we must, as one philosopher said, will the one thing. Have singular hearts that are moving in one direction. To love the Lord our God with everything that we have and everything that we are. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. Robbie, you cheated. That's two things. Well, to be fair, the New Testament says they're essentially inseparable. Right? Like fire, you cannot have light without the heat. And Jesus and the New Testament writers will say, you, you, you cannot love God and not love others. Those things are inseparable. All that is not motivated by the love of God, both his for us and ours for him, and love for others, both his for them and ours for them, has no place in our hearts. Because it is by definition not motivated by faith. The problem is that life is really hard. Right? It's really messy. We can talk about these things and go, sounds great, will one thing, on it. And then by the time I make it to the car, I'm already frustrated at the person I came with or remembering something that's waiting for me when I get home. Right? My desk at work that I seem to clean every single afternoon, somehow the next afternoon manages to clutter itself again. It's maddening. Similarly, I allow God to sweep the clutter off the desk of my heart and seemingly minutes later, I just add back on worries Distractions, needs, empty desires, judgment of others, fear of man, fear of circumstances. And all of a sudden I go, what, what happened to the desk again? This is where this exhortation or pleading to serve him faithfully kicks in. This is where it gets its teeth. I must take time to clean my desk every single afternoon so that the next morning I can come into a clean desk. And I must take that kind of time with my heart, how much more important is it to have an uncluttered heart than it is an uncluttered desk? Proverbs 4 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. In a fascinating verse in Joshua, it says, Be very careful to love the Lord your God. Is that an interesting way to say that? I found that very interesting. What stands out to you in both of these verses? There's a lot of effort involved in this, right? Vig constant vigilance. Be very careful. That requires intentionality. Be very careful to love God. Otherwise, you will turn away from God and after empty things. The gravity of our hearts is always pulling us back to stuff and self. 
If I am not intentionally pursuing God, I am moving away from him. And, and understand theologically, I'm never moving away from God. I simply mean in terms of the, the, the focus of my heart. I'm fixated on other things. I'm fixated on, I'm pursuing other desires. But it is really difficult to do this. That's why so few of us do this. Puritan named John, uh, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on, he's either Flavel or Flavel. You choose. It's up to you. I don't actually know what John himself would prefer, but he wrote this. Heart work is hard work indeed. To shuffle over religious duties with a loose and heedless spirit will cost you no great pains. That's easy. But to see yourself before the Lord and tie up your loose and empty thoughts to a constant and serious attention on him, this will cost you something. It's so worth it. As we finish, the way, one of the very practical ways we do this is to consider, number three, consider the great things that he has done for you. The empty things See, this is why it gets tricky. The empty things feel real in the moment. But then looking back, we see that they have offered us nothing, provided us nothing except for disappointment and pain and shame. God, however, can feel unreal in the moment. But looking back, we see the extraordinary ways that he has loved and provided and guided and transformed. How often do you take time to reflect on all the things that God has done and is doing for you? Daily? Monthly? Annually? Ever? Do not underestimate, church, the, the faith-igniting joy-inducing power of remembering the ways that your heavenly Father has guided and blessed and taught and healed and led and saved you. First and foremost among the great things that he has done for you, verse 22, the Lord will not forsake you. He does not forsake his people. Because you're so great and he knows you're never going to screw up? Nope. For his name's sake. Praise Jesus, it doesn't depend on me. Because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It delights him to come to us in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our pain, our sin, our rebellion. It pleases him to say, I'm just going to adopt you and make you mine. He has made us into a people that he will never forsake. So church, do not be afraid of your sin. Rather, fear God. Do not turn aside from God, but faithfully serve him with your whole heart. Do not turn aside after empty things, which neither profit nor deliver. But consider daily what great things the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, has done for you and is doing for you.
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. and He will make your path straight. Father, we believe. We need help with our unbelief. Please remind us of all that you have already accomplished on our behalf, that our sin is a conquered foe. Our shame has been borne by you so that we don't have to carry it anymore. But that you adopting us into your family is is not a one and done deal, but you are inviting us into a life, a life of following you, of delighting in your abundant way. Stir our affections for you, our dependence on you, and our delight in you. For your glory, for our joy, and for the joy of your image bearers and all of your creation. Amen.